uh, as they went down uh, an old familiar favorite slope, and I went out seeking adventure. And as I sought adventure, I, I skied right past the sign that said, experts only beyond this point. I, at that point, considered myself, okay, that, that counts me. Like, I, I'm an expert. Um, and in my adventure, I ended up at the top of a slope that I had been eyeing earlier uh, in the day as we were going up the chairlift. And the name of this slope, it was a double black diamond. For those of you who aren't ski savvy, that's pretty much the, the highest level you can go. And I, I ended up at the top of this double black diamond called Loco. And so for those of you who don't speak Spanish, that means crazy. So I ended up at the top of, of Loco and the reality sort of sunk in that this looked a lot steeper from the top than it had from the bottom. And so I, I found myself at a crossroads or, or a fork in the road. I had two choices. I could either A, um, go... By, by the way, my dad and his friends were at the bottom of the slope. I could see them. They could see me, and they were waiting to see what happened. <laughs> so... I had two choices. I could ski down the catwalk, the, the green that sort of winds its way around and sort of with my tail between my legs and, and probably not hear the end of it for a while. Or I could conquer Loco. And so, fun fact, uh, research has shown that uh, the human brain doesn't fully develop until 25 years old. And <laughs> the decision-making part of our brain is one of the last things to develop. So 22-year-old Alex conquered Loco. Uh, and it was awesome. Like, I, on, I only had to climb back up the mountain for a ski, I think, once. Uh, but I made it to the bottom. I, I didn't break any limbs, and I, I was okay. And that, that story always comes to mind when I think of, of those decisions we're faced when we have to make a, a definitive choice between one option or another, that there's no, there's no middle ground. Uh, in, in the passage from Luke that we're going to be looking at today, Jesus is going to emphasize this idea that there are uh, there are only two choices in life in, in reference to our relationship with God, in reference to our relationship with him, that um, we're either with him or we're against him. And it's, it's a stark statement. Uh, and it's brought on by, by a group of people that are, um, they want to avoid making a decision. They want to hang out in the middle for just a little bit longer. And so let me, let me pray for us, and we'll actually dive into to our passage for today. So God, I do thank you for your word, that, um, that we have the, the recorded words of, of Christ to look at, that we can benefit from his teaching, just as those who, um, who were with him in person uh, benefited from, from his wisdom and the truth that he brought to the world. And so I just pray for our time as we study this today, study your word, that your spirit would guide us. Lord, and convict us of, of the things that we need to make a decision on in our lives. So again, we do thank you for Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So we're picking, off, uh, picking up right where we left off in Luke last week. We were in Luke chapter 11, and in the last two weeks we were talking about prayer. Jesus is teaching on prayer, and we went up through verse 13, and, and verse 14 comes with a very uh, big change of scenery. We're not in the same spot. We're not on the same topic. Uh, and we pick up the story sort of in the middle of, of Jesus performing one of the staples of his ministry, and that's, that's driving out demons. Starting in verse 14 of, of Luke uh, chapter 11, it says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute, and when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. 
And so, again, this has become somewhat of a familiar scene so far in the book of Luke. In Luke 4, we saw Jesus heal a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. And in Luke 8, Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee into Gentile territory, and he casts out many demons from a man. In Luke 9, uh, Luke 9 recounts the story of, of Jesus healing a young boy that was possessed with a demon that caused seizures. As we've seen in previous accounts of Jesus' exorcisms, uh, the demon-caused symptoms cease once the demon is gone. This, this man who was mute, who was unable to speak, now is speaking. And, and it says the people were amazed. The main feature of this account that sets it apart from the others is that reaction of the crowds. In Luke 4, the crowds were amazed and they wondered at at Jesus' authority. It says uh, in in verse 36, All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words are these? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. Luke 9 uh, records that they were all amazed at the greatness of God. And fear was the dominating um, reaction of the Gentiles in Luke 8 upon Jesus displaying his, uh, his... power and authority over demons. They say, when Jesus came, uh, or when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Jump forward a couple verses. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. And so we see fear and amazement out of the people so far. And, and I, I'd say that those two reactions are somewhat akin to one another and that they both stem from a, a source of respect or a, a place of respect for the power that's being shown. But the people in this passage are a little bit different. Yes, right away we see, and the crowd was amazed. But that amazement is, is quickly replaced with another reaction. And that reaction is, is skepticism. We continue on in verse 15. It says, But some of them said, by, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And others tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven. So yes, there was an element of amazement from those uh, in the crowd who had witnessed this miracle. But it was quickly followed by skepticism. And skepticism is something that's alive and well in today's world as much as it was um, during Jesus' ministry. And I'd, I'd argue perhaps even more so that skepticism has, has almost become viewed as a virtue within the world today. And, and so for today's purposes, I'm going to be operating under a, a narrow definition of, of skepticism. And that says, as continued doubt in the face of clear evidence. So that's just, that's what I'm, it's a narrow definition, but it's what we're going to sort of be operating off of today as we, uh, as we look into these skeptics of Jesus. And so two issues are raised, right, regarding the power the, over demons that Jesus is displaying. In verse 15, some of the crowd are questioning the source of Jesus' power accusing him of being in league with Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And later in the passage, Jesus is going to draw a line between Satan and Beelzebul, making those two names somewhat synonymous with one another. And it's interesting to note here that these skeptics aren't questioning whether or not Jesus displays authentic power or authentic authority. Instead, they, they attempt to attribute that power to a malicious source as opposed to a godly source. In questioning the source of the power, they also somewhat question the motive behind Jesus' actions. 
Perhaps they were asking the question, what kind of deception was Jesus attempting to pull by using his demonic powers to cast out demons? In verse 16, we see another contingent within the crowd that are, that are questioning the authenticity of Jesus' power and authority. And again, while the first group didn't call into question whether or not uh, what Jesus had done was authentic, this group is not so sure. They, they want more proof. Perhaps they're thinking, well, did this guy really have a demon? Or, or was he a plant in the crowd? Or maybe they were asking, how do we even know that Jesus is the cause for um, this man's recovery? Could it have possibly been a coincidence? There was some skepticism there as to whether Jesus' power here was, was authentic. And so they asked for a sign from heaven. So they wanted, they wanted something flashier. Perhaps they were looking for something along the lines of what happens in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah calls down fire from heaven to prove that the God of Israel is the one true God when he faced opposition and questions from the priests of Baal. Perhaps that was something that they were looking like. But the people in this passage had a miracle right in front of them, but they weren't satisfied with what they saw. They wanted to wait for further information before they decided whether or not Jesus was for real. And this kind of skepticism is, is so common, and, and I, I, I think we see it in, in so many different areas of our lives. This past summer, my sister and her husband um, celebrated 15 years of marriage. And so my brother, Alan, he is, or my brother-in-law, Alan, is, is a great guy. He's kind, he's patient, he's funny, he's caring, and the list goes on and on. But those qualities that endear him to me now were the source of, of some pretty heavy skepticism the first time that I met him. My sister Kelly brought Alan to an annual 4th of July celebration over a weekend, um, probably 15, 16, 17 years ago. And I was in middle school at the time, and he was so nice. He was so helpful. He was so upbeat. Every time that I asked him to, to play a board game or a game of croquet or something like that, he was like, yeah, sure. And that was probably like two or three times an hour. It was like the, the question, or the answer was never no. It was a great weekend. But I remember after that saying to my parents, I don't know about this Allen guy. He's got to be hiding something. No, nobody, nobody is that nice. And I vowed to keep an eye on him. As, as a good younger brother does, right? I vowed to keep an eye on him. And I've been keeping my eye on Alan for over 15 years now. And my skepticism is long gone. But much like the crowd in this story that we're, we're looking at today, uh, I was an eyewitness to the truth. It was right in front of me. But I allowed skepticism for, to, to prevent me from seeing that truth for what it was. And sadly, sometimes we apply that sort of skepticism to God's work in our lives or God's work in someone else's life. Sometimes we see a transformation in a person and our first uh, reaction is, is to question whether or not that transformation is authentic or real rather than giving praise to God for his work in someone's life. But Jesus has an answer to these skeptics. Verse 17, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the first thing to note is this mention of two kingdoms, right? We see mentioned Satan and his kingdom. We also see mentioned the kingdom of God. And these two kingdoms are at conflict with one. They're in conflict with one another. They're at war with one another. And Jesus first uses cold, hard logic to dispel the idea that his command over demons stems from authority given to him by Satan. If Jesus' power really did come from Satan, his act of driving out demons would be evidence of civil war within Satan's kingdom, right? With one of his agents attacking another and overpowering it. Kingdoms and nations have warred against one another forever. Since the beginning of time, you open up a history book and a large portion of it is devoted to the conflicts between nations. But the most devastating and crippling wars happen when civil war happens within a nation. We need to only look at our own past as as a nation to see the truth of this. Statistics show us this. Um, The civil war claimed the lives of nearly two and a half percent of the population. Of America. The next, number two on that list, the next closest would be World War II, which claimed just over a quarter of a percent of the population. Not only was the loss of life in our civil war catastrophic, but it left our nation bitter and divided to a point where some of the effects of that even are, are still felt in our nation today. So the notion that Satan, who is known to be incredibly crafty, would pit one of his own agents up against another is, it's absurd. And so that assertion that Jesus works as an agent of Satan is one that that can't be defended. So again, Jesus, and I love this. As a logical person, I love that Jesus is is just, is tearing the argument down. No, that, that just doesn't make sense. That isn't something that Satan would do. And Jesus then moves on to the second part of his, um, of his refute of the claim that he's an agent of Satan. He poses this question, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? And this is one of those places, one of those pieces of scripture where sometimes we run into trouble trying to discern exactly what Jesus is trying to get at here. And there are a couple of options. Um, Jesus could be referring to uh, and when he says your followers, Jesus could be referring to Jewish exorcists. As, as the account of this story, if you were to look at the parallel in Mark, it shows that those who were questioning him in the crowd were members of the Jewish authority, the teachers of the law. And so Jesus could be saying, uh, speaking of Jewish exorcists, saying that, well, if I am using demonic power, who are your followers? Or what power are your followers using? This view, though, is, is not necessarily as likely as Jewish exorcisms were rare. Our accounts of them are unreliable. And the type of authority displayed by Jesus here is completely different than the methods that we have that showed how the Jewish exorcists operated. The more likely scenario is that Jesus is referring to his own followers. This, this, this word, your followers, more closely translates, or more literally translates, to your sons. And they likely refer to other Jews who have cast their lot with Jesus. Just in the previous chapter, we saw that Jesus sent out his own followers and gave them authority over the demons. And they displayed that authority. So this idea is probably saying, what about your fellow Jews who are displaying this type of authority, who have cast their lot with me? Jesus argues that they're the ones that have it right. They're the ones who have made the right decision and that they will stand in judgment over these skeptics unless they change their mind 
about Jesus. And finally, Jesus moves away from refuting their skepticism and makes a statement of his own. There are two sides to this argument here. Jesus' opponents argue that Jesus is either a fraud or that he's an agent of Satan. Those are their arguments. And the only other option then would be that Jesus is sent from God. And that something in this conflict, this war between the kingdom of hell and the kingdom of heaven, Satan's kingdom and the kingdom of God, something has fundamentally changed. Jesus acts with the finger of God, which is a reference back to the conflict between Moses and Aaron and the the magicians of Pharaoh in the Exodus account. So Pharaoh's magicians were able to replicate the first two plagues that God sent upon the Egyptians. But when Moses and Aaron, empowered by God, sent the plague of gnats, they were stumped. Exodus 8 uh, records this account. It says, But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret art, they could not. Since the gnats were on the people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And that's the reference that Jesus is pulling from here. And just as the plagues of of the Exodus account left no doubt that God was behind them, that it wasn't trickery, that it was Moses and Aaron empowered by God. Jesus' display of dominance over demons uh, leaves no doubt, again, that God is behind this, that the source of Jesus' power is godly. It's a sign that the kingdom of God has come And that God's assault on Satan's kingdom has begun in earnest. And this assault, this war, this conflict is with a purpose. And Jesus explains this purpose and calls us to action uh, with a couple of parables then. Verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And this first parable here is is heavily influenced by um, Isaiah chapter 49, which is devoted to um, the servant of the Lord, of describing this promised rescuer of the nation of Israel. In In this chapter, God promises to rescue his people and to free them from captivity. Verses 24 and 25 of Isaiah 49 read, Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you. And your children I will save. You see, because of our sin, and again, because of Satan's craftiness in the garden, we are captives of Satan. A captive is at the mercy of his captor and has no hope of escaping by his own means. The only hope for a captive is for someone to come along and rescue them, someone who's greater than their oppressor, right? That's who the stronger man is here. Jesus is that greater force. Jesus is that rescuer. Jesus is that stronger man who can overpower Satan and retrieve us, his his plunder. And the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we sang it earlier in the service, evokes some image of this idea of, of Christ coming and being our Savior, Christ coming and rescuing us from the grips of Satan. 
when the verse starts, O come, O come, Emmanuel, to ransom captive Israel. The second verse, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. That's the image of, of who Christ is, that he is our rescuer, to rescue from Satan's captivity. And this Advent season we're in right now is when we celebrate that, that anticipated arrival of this stronger man to rescue us. And so far, the skeptics in this scene have, have resisted declaring for Jesus. Again, whether they're, they're skeptical of the source of his power or whether they're skeptical of the authenticity of his power. They want to delay their decision. They kind of want to wait somewhere in the middle to see how things are going to fall. But Jesus calls them on this. There's no waiting in the middle. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And here comes the crux of the argument, right? With the coming of the kingdom of God, the battle lines are drawn. The forces of heaven, the forces of hell are arrayed. And we have to choose a side. There's no sitting in the middle option as is the case if a real battle were happening between two armies. Sitting in the middle is directly in the path of destruction. A side has to be chosen. And the choices are simple, albeit stark, declaring for Jesus or being counted amongst his opponents. By today's standards and today's world, that position may seem intolerant or closed-minded or narrow, but the truth is it's a position of, of love and of grace from a gracious God. God is willing to do battle for us who've already scorned him. God is willing to do battle for us. And he's so willing to do it and wants to save us so badly that he sent his son into the fray of battle, knowing full well what the result of that was going to be. Knowing full well that his son was going to pay the price of death for us in order to rescue us. And we can either choose, again, to accept it and assist in the rescue and gather with him or reject it and share in the destiny of God's opponents. Again, stark, but gracious even at the same time, that that's an option for us. And Jesus addresses in this next parable what happens to those who still try and stay in the middle not committing one way or another, or, or those who maybe just want to dip their toe in, in following Jesus. Just see how, how this is, well, maybe we'll see. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking, the re- uh, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go out and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. So this parable tells the story of a demon who's been cast out of a person and wanders for a time. And after wandering for a time, it decides to go back to the person and it finds them unchanged. And upon finding that person unchanged, the demon finds seven friends to join him putting the person down, further down the path of darkness than they were at the beginning. And this illustrates what happens when we encounter the grace and the mercy of God and fail to respond. Or our commitment to Christ isn't absolute when we retain areas of our lives that we don't want Jesus to be involved in. When we prevent Christ from infiltrating, filling and guiding us in those areas of life. 
that leaves the door open to Satan for him to find his way back into our lives. Maybe it's our finances. We don't want to surrender that completely to Jesus. Maybe it's our relationships. We don't want to surrender that and allow Jesus to guide us in that area of our lives. Maybe it's our careers. We want to make the decisions. We want to make that ultimate determination on that, and we want to hold that back. Perhaps it's our anger that we're unwilling to surrender completely to Christ. Paul warns against that very scenario in Ephesians 4 when he says, Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Where Christ is present, Satan can gain no foothold. But it's the areas where Christ is absent in our lives that give Satan an in. That's where, that's where he focuses his attacks. And it's for that reason our, our allegiance, our commitment, must be solely and totally to Christ. Without Jesus, we're at the mercy of Satan, who we know to be a deceiving, manipulative master and a harsh jailer. Satan holds us in captivity, but in Christ, but in Jesus, who's a merciful rescuer, victory over the forces of Satan is a certainty. It's a done deal. There's no doubt in it. And the plunder of that victory is ours to share with Christ. It's ours to share with Christ. So we've seen Jesus respond to those who are opposed or, or skeptical of his ministry. And his response is measured, it's logical, and it's absolute. The mission and method of Jesus and the mission and method of Satan are diametrically opposed to one another. While Jesus came with a mission to seek and save the lost, Satan's mission is one of deception and one of oppression. There's no compatibility between the two. There's no middle ground. There's no kind of intersections that we can hang out in. We must choose where we stand in this conflict. And while we, we need to test the truth of everything that we encounter, but we have to be careful not to let a skeptic's mindset be a roadblock in making a decision to follow Christ, to trust in Christ. Paul addresses the proper attitude that we should have when it comes to this in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Yes, we need to test what we hear and make sure that it is the authentic truth of God. We need to determine the truth and validity of it and reject what's evil. Reject what what doesn't fall in line with God's plans and desires. But we need to be careful not to be like Jesus' opponents in the passage today, continuing to doubt even when witnessing the truth. So I encourage us to ask ourselves where a skeptical attitude is acting as that roadblock in our allegiance to Christ. Is a skeptical attitude towards the truth of Scripture keeping you from placing your faith in Jesus in the first place? Is a skeptical attitude toward the Holy Spirit's work in someone's life preventing you from recognizing the authenticity of a brother or sister's faith? Maybe it's a skeptical attitude towards Christ's promise to be with us as we seek to fulfill the Great Commission that prevents us from being bold in our efforts to reach the lost for Christ. Skepticism can creep its way into so many areas of our faith. If that's something that interests you, 
we have a class even going on in January about a skeptic's mindset. I encourage you to, to think about checking that out. But that mindset is something that we have to be on the lookout for in our own hearts. Because it, it is a roadblock in our ability to follow Christ. So though the statements in, in, of Jesus in this passage, they're challenging. Absolute statements like you're either for me or against me. Those are challenging. They're difficult. But they're also incredibly encouraging. Jesus' statements in this passage are encouraging. He calls us to action, but he calls us to love, grace, and mercy within that. In our sin, we've already rejected God once. We've actually already made the decision once when we chose to sin. We get a second chance. God has come. God has sent his son to save us from Satan's captivity because of our sin. So yes, we need to be challenged by Jesus' words here. But as we continue in this Advent season, we can also rejoice. I love that chorus in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. God with us will come to thee, O Israel. God sent his son to his people to ransom his people from captivity. So I hope that you are challenged by this to assess our hearts and where that skeptic's attitude is affecting us. But I also hope that we can rejoice in this season, that we can turn our praises back to God for this incredible truth that he did go to battle for us. He sent his son into the fray to die for us in that battle and raised him from the dead in thus reuniting us, saving us from that captivity. So I'm going to pray for us. I want to, by Brian, our worship team, give us an opportunity through song to rejoice in the truth 